0: Hi and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Good morning. We're in Daniel chapter 6 today. Daniel and the lion's den, which is quite frankly where I'd rather be than helping out children in the children's ministry next Sunday, but... After a year, uh, a week at school. I think I just signed up, didn't I? Uh, Daniel chapter 6, and if you remember when we first started Daniel chapter uh, 1, I said that uh, it changes, the text changes in chapter 6 to chapter 7, there's a different genre or text type, and it changes from what we would call a kind of historical narrative to what they call apocalyptic literature, which has a lot of figurative language, so 7 to 12, which is usually part 2 of Daniel, is very hard to interpret, very difficult So we thought we'd leave that for the new pastor when that person arrives. We'll give them that job to do. But let's pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for our team who have led us in worship as well. We thank you for the gifts and abilities you've given them. And we thank you for their servant hearts. Uh, They bring to us a quality of worship uh, and a humbleness in worship every week. And we thank you for that. Uh, As we delve into your word, we know that it comes from an ancient text. It comes from a historical context very different to ours. And it comes from the spiritual experience of Daniel, uh, which was a long time ago and in times very different to us as well. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take your word, uh, bring to our mind and hearts the enduring truths that you want us to think about and practice for the glory of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I studied education, I studied middle school, so I had to do all the subjects. One of the subjects I wasn't looking forward to was drama, but I had to do it. Look, I'm not into, you know, you, you know, you're a seed and then you're growing into a tree blowing in the wind and you have to, you know, act that. I'm not really into that kind of stuff. I'd prefer to go to uni and just listen to someone lecture on history or something for the day. But anyway, I thought, look, it's an online course, so how bad could it get? I didn't read the fine print though which actually said you've got to go to university for a whole day and uh, you, you'll be involved in a simulation which will teach you about drama. So I thought, oh, it's not my thing but I have to do it. So I went into this, uh, the, 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 the day and you know how they have introduction thing games at the beginning of these types of events? Well, they had one where you, uh, they, they would make a statement, and if you agreed with that statement, you would go to one end of the room. If you disagreed with that statement, you would go to the other end of the room. And I thought, this is fine. You know, the first question's Pepsi or Pepsi Max, McDonald's or Hungry Jack's. And I thought, this is cool. But then they had a little agenda. And the next number of questions, actually they raised ethical or moral issues. An attempt, I think, to uh, weed out the Christians or religious people who are in this group. And so they started asking these questions. Now, I thought at the time, this is a group of about 70 people that I'm going to be with for the whole day. This is the beginning of the day. It would be far easier to go with the crowd you know, to make the day easier, or I could go based on what my Christian belief was. And uh, I thought, I'll go with my, my beliefs. And I started asking these questions, three questions in a row. There were 68 people down one end of the room, and there were two people, myself and an older gentleman, down this end of the room. And after their three questions, these three questions, pointed questions, uh, the older guy just looked at me and he said, so what church do you go to? <laughs> I thought, well, I wonder if you've ever been in that situation where you're tempted. You're faced with a temptation to compromise and, you know, it's not a big deal. The, the, you know, the situation might have been a big deal. You know, it's just a little bit now and then. I could just go with the crowd. It would make my life a little easier, just a bit. C.S. Lewis wrote a very interesting book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's actually a conversation between two demons, an older demon to a younger one, and the older one is imparting his wisdom to the younger one. And in this uh, book, the affectionate uncle says to the younger demon, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, Without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That is indeed the safest or safest road to hell, the gradual one, he says. Now, as evangelicals, we would think, no, 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 it's either based on the acceptance or rejection of the gospel. But you get the point. You get the point when it comes to compromise. Today's passage speaks about a challenge to compromise that Daniel faced. And for Daniel, this was a biggie. Now, the context, remember, is Daniel is in a foreign land. He has been ripped away from his homeland. He is now watching his unique culture, its beliefs, its values, its social and religious traditions being slowly absorbed by another culture. Many of the Hebrews probably complained to Daniel about their God, forsaking them. What are we doing in this foreign land? Was our God too weak? to stop the invading, uh, the, the invading army? I mean, what about our temple where it was supposed to be sacred and holy where God dwelt with his people? It's now ransacked and in ruins. And I'm sure Daniel heard those comments. What is our God doing? And what about the covenantal promises that God made to Father Abraham? They seem far off. Where is our land? Where is our king? But despite the situation, Daniel didn't give up on God. Not that his life was too difficult. In verse 3, we actually read, Daniel had an excellent spirit that was within him. Now, this probably refers to Daniel's surpassing ability to do his job with a commendable aptitude and attitude. Consequently, Daniel had a privileged position in this foreign land, including having the favour of the king. And this must have come with lots of benefits, an easier life for Daniel, a more comfortable life, but lots of responsibilities to as a governor. However, as we've seen through 1-6 to six of Daniel, Daniel's fundamental passion in life was to remain faithful in his relationship with God. To not compromise, not even just for a little. And I wonder if his kind of lifestyle, unique for a slave, actually made the decision to not compromise even more challenging, even more difficult... But nevertheless, Daniel made up his mind to focus on his relationship with the God of Abraham. Now this morning I'm not going to read the passages, the passage I should say, however, or the chapter. I will speak about its content by dividing it into three separate scenes. Scene one, the plot. Now this is found in verses one to nine. Daniel has distinguished himself as a very competent leader and governor. However, conflict with jealous rivals puts Daniel in a a life-threatening situation. The other governors, extremely jealous of Daniel's success, they actually can't find any kind of political accusation against him. Because it says in verse 4, he was faithful, no negligence or corruption could be found in him. That'd be great to say of your politicians, wouldn't it? Anyway, verse 4. But this doesn't mean Daniel was actually perfect, doesn't mean he's perfect. But rather his first allegiance is to God and his testimony at work is beyond reproach because of that. Because he put God first. And these jealous ones couldn't find any political accusations, so they create one. In verse 5, the other governors knew Daniel had been judicious in obeying the laws of the land, but when it came to the law of the land, conflicting with his relationship with God, they knew that Daniel would break the former in favour of the latter. So they go to the king Darius and convince him via a royal decree That they have all agreed upon, they said, which was a blatant lie. Because Daniel, as a governor, was not part of that conversation. Daniel was absent. But they said, look, we've all got together and we want you to put out a decree. That no one petitions any God or man for 30 days except you, O king. Sign this document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. So they come, out, they come up, they concoct this plan, this scheme, to trap both Daniel and the king. Now, again, this theme of sovereignty that we've seen right through the book of Daniel is a central issue here. Persian kings were kind of not inclined to deify themselves. So this is probably actually about one going to the king and the king becoming the sole representative and that any prayers for 30 days to any kind of gods must be channeled through him. And although verse 9 it simply reads, therefore the king signed the written decree, the actual Hebrew of verse 9 suggests that the king may have been a little suspicious, but there were no grounds for concern. And he signs a decree. Well, that's scene one, the plot. Then we come to scene two. Daniel is accused in verses 10 to 18. Now, Daniel could have examined his life. He had privileges that he enjoyed. He had influence that he could exert as a governor. He had powerful, a powerful position. I mean, come on. It's only 30 days. That's it. I mean, what would you have done in Daniel's position? Have you ever gone 30 days without praying? I mean, Daniel could have quietly prayed in his heart. He could have done that. There's not only one method uh, to praying, we know this. In fact, pre-exilic Jews, before the exile, actually prayed standing up. When they walked around, they would stop and they would pray. Well, why couldn't Daniel do that? Why couldn't he just go somewhere where he wasn't seen and pray? Was it really worth continuing to pray in his usual fashion? He's challenged to compromise, not whether he prays or not, because he could do that without being seen, but the mode or method of his prayer, that's it. He could have just said a quick prayer, a quiet prayer, kind of like the prayers we say in a restaurant, a crowded restaurant when we say grace. Get it over and done with it then. Or is that just me? <laughs> e. Stanley Jones says this, a wonderful preacher and theologian. He says, If you don't make up your mind, your unmade mind will unmake you. We say that again. if you don't make up your mind, your unmade mind will unmake you. Undeterred by this royal proclamation, Daniel resumes praying by the window of his house, knowing the decree was unbreakable. Even by the king. Once it's signed, not even the king could change it. Had Daniel taken evasive actions, Daniel is a wise man. He is a good leader. He knows if he had taken evasive action, some other plot would eventually be laid against him. If he didn't make a stand now, he would have had to deal with something else similar to this some other time. And therefore, he remained faithful and prayed in his usual way. He would not let the decree intrude on his personal liberty regarding the mode of his prayer and method of his prayer. Now, it's really, really important to note here that Daniel's decision was not a moral choice. It wasn't an ethical dilemma. It was simply... The mode and method of how he prayed. It wasn't an actual sin, but rather, and listen to this, rather, a positive duty he chose not to neglect. That's what it was. A positive duty or habit that he said, I'm not going to change. You see, the real battle for Daniel is not in the lion's den. It's in his room. That's where the real battle was for Daniel. For Daniel, his faith is formed and fashioned in his relationship with God. And for Daniel, prayer was a crucial part of that relationship. In this foreign land, prayer became far more important than being an excellent governor For him, prayer was far more important than being an excellent interpreter of dreams or an excellent prophet or an excellent administrator. Daniel's opposition to the king's decree is an example of legitimate disobedience to the government at the time. In verse 10 we read, As was his custom, since early days he prayed facing God. Jerusalem. Exiled some time ago, he had not forgotten his city which was in ruins or his country or God's promise to make Israel great or Jerusalem. He firmly believes God is in control and even though he looks towards Jerusalem in ruins, he prays. He goes to the window as was his custom which wouldn't have, would have been a small window with some wooden shutters, small and high up in the house to protect the house from any uh, thieves. There was probably a lattice piece of lattice wood that would let in the breeze, but some, obscure the view somewhat. We can infer that someone was stationed to watch that window to catch him in the act. The crucial phrase here, as was his custom, is really important. See, the qualities Daniel did or had didn't come suddenly into his life. It was because he developed a lifelong habit of prayer and the strength to say no to compromise. We know this because, in fact, way back in chapter 1, verse 8, as a young teenager, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. As a teenager... And now, many years later, he still has that same discipline. The word purposed in Hebrew means determined, steadfastly considered, committed his heart not to defile himself. Rick Warren says God's ultimate goal for your life on earth is not comfort, but character development. He wants you to grow up spiritually. He wants you to become like his son, Jesus Christ. Those opposing Daniel immediately report to Darius. You have to do something, you sign the decree. In verse 13, this is what they say about Daniel Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you. Notice the absolute lack of any mention of Daniel's good qualities, his integrity his leadership ability, no, 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 he's one of them. They insinuate that he is politically unfaithful and disloyal. And we find King Darius, who actually likes Daniel, is trapped in the rigidity of his own legalism. And though greatly displeased in verse 14, he's cornered, a royal decree could not be revoked, until the time of expiration had occurred and his own law condemns daniel yet if you read the chapter it says his heart actually longs to save him so daniel's accused we have seen one the plot seen two the accusation and now seen three daniel's deliverance found in verses 19 to 28 So these verses record Daniel's deliverance and the outcome. So Daniel, as a result of praying, is cast into a den or a pit of lions. And the king announces in verse 16, his God whom he serves continually will deliver him. Be confident, Daniel. And then the king goes home and has a restless night trying to sleep, not worrying about Daniel. The very next morning, verse 20, the king gets up and he goes to the pit or the den. Has the God who preserves life able to preserve you, Daniel? It's kind of like he's saying it with his fingers crossed. I don't think he really expected any reply, but expects to see the remains of God's servant horribly perished during the night. Now we know if you've been a Christian long enough and been in Sunday school and so forth, you know the story of deliverance After a night spent with lions, Daniel emerges unscathed. Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury was found on him because he believed in his God. In verse 22, we actually have the victory cry. I've been found innocent of the charges that these people have schemed. I've been found innocent before him, God. That's all Daniel's worried about. We are told that an angel of the Lord shut the lion's mouth. That's a really interesting expression, the angel of the Lord. It was the angel of the Lord who led Jacob through his long life. The angel who accompanied Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The same angel had blessed Daniel with his comforting presence throughout the night. Theologians have wrestled with this phrase, Uh, angel of the Lord and many have come to the conclusion that the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. And what I think this scene teaches us is that there's no situation into which we shall ever enter without Christ. Even martyrdom. God did not deliver Daniel from the trouble but in the trouble God's presence and glory are in the den of lions. It was the same with the Apostle Paul, who gives us a catalogue of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to, 20, to 33. If you think you're having a bad day as a Christian, read through that passage, verses 23 to 33. He goes to this huge list of what he's endured as a Christian, yet in the very same context of suffering, he was persuaded that there was nothing that could separate him from his Saviour. Someone once wrote, to accomplish the purposes of God is to dwell where his presence and glory are. Now if that's true, if that's true, then the greatest accomplishment of God was to redeem a fallen world. His presence and glory, therefore, are ultimately demonstrated in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Daniel is in the den, but so is the angel of the Lord. God's ultimate will is not to deliver us from suffering or difficulty, but to bless us with his presence and unbreaking communion with him in the midst of difficulty because that's when we need him most. The number one lesson, I think, of application in this entire event is simply the importance of prayer as communion with God. As I read through Daniel's story, the words of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 35, jumped out at me. And in the morning, a great while before the day, Jesus rose and went out to a lonely place. And there he prayed as in fact the Gospels tell us was his custom. This verse stands as a commentary on the life of Jesus, and we could say the same about Daniel. People are willing to die for that which is of great importance to them, and Daniel was willing to die rather than change his daily custom of prayer. Is prayer that important to us? Is prayer that important to us? It's foundational to our relationship with God. Without prayer, we sacrifice intimacy with God. If Daniel 6 teaches us anything, it's not to neglect the privileges that God has given to us as his children to talk to him in prayer. Now, this may be a simple quote on which to conclude my talk this morning but it actually speaks volumes. And I think this is why Daniel wasn't prepared to change. And the quote comes from Andrew Murray. Prayer is not a monologue. Prayer is a dialogue. Prayer is not a monologue. Prayer is a dialogue. And that's where relationship is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Daniel's life. Thank you for the things that we've been able to learn from his life. We know, Lord, that to apply these things in our minds and our hearts and our lives, our behaviour, comes about through your grace. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to bring these things into our life to give you glory and to lift up the name of Jesus Christ to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.